The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting NYFF 56 selection A Faithful Man. Louis Garrel is caught between two strong women played by Leticia Casta and Lily Rose Depp in this romantic comedy set in Paris, in theaters starting July 19th. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jim Jarmusch interviewed by Amy Taubin, and Maddie Diop's Atlantics by Dennis Lim. Plus, an ode to Doris Day by Terrence Davies, United Artists at 100, the acting partnership of Ossie Davis and Ruby D, Ari Aster on his Midsummer Inspirations, and much, much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism and subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. This week, we take a look at a few films making their way to theaters after successes on the festival circuit. Lulu Wang's The Farewell has already received a fair amount of attention for its sweet story of a family reacting to the illness of a beloved grandmother in China. But we also talk about two lesser-known films that recreate vivid moments from the past in Argentina and England. Rojo, from director Benjamin Neistat, and Ray and Liz from Richard Billingham, best known for his photography. Also on the menu is The Art of Self-Defense, starring Jesse Eisenberg. Joining me for this episode were critic Emily Ishida, who has written for Vulture and Vanity Fair, and Devika Girish, a frequent contributor to Film Comment. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Nick Rapold, the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is our semi-regular uh, overview of new releases, uh, sometimes appended to our world-renowned rep report, this time existing independently uh, as its own organism. Today, we're going to talk about a number of films, most of them films that aren't maybe getting the attention they could or should. I guess a couple of them are, maybe. Um, and I'm very pleased to be joined by, uh, for the first time on our podcast, Emily Yoshida. Hi. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming. Uh, it's uh, do if you want to say a bit about what you're you're up to doing lately. Yeah, for sure. So I uh, recently uh, ended a job as uh, the critic, uh, a critic at New York Magazine and Vulture, and I've been freelance writing recently, doing a lot of still, you know, obviously in the world of film. Um, just recently did a profile of uh, Lulu Wong for Sense. Um, and I did an interview with Ari Aster also about Midsummer that was in Vulture. So I'm still very much, you know, keeping up with yes. <laughs> keeping up with things. Yeah. Yeah. Our, Ari was just here for our film comment talk. He's um, yeah, he's such a delight to talk to. Yes. He's, he's <laughs> for somebody with his imagination. <laughs> yeah, he's an absolute delight. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Um, and we are also joined by Devika Girish, film comment contributor. Um, uh, and I think maybe actually you were just mentioning you did a profile of Lulu Wong. Um, do you want to start off by talking about the farewell a bit? And yeah. So, um, I don't, did you guys, were you guys both at Sundance for, yes. yeah. yeah. We so were. were you in that first rapturous room where everybody I, I think fell I had, in love with it? I might've caught up with it late. But. I, I saw it like, actually, I think it might've been one of the last films I oh, saw okay. at the festival. So I think I saw it with a more muted crowd, but okay. it hit me harder. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Interesting because I feel like there was so. I mean, even before getting there, it was. I think a lot of people were kind of whispering that it was going to be the big hit of Sundance, and it really was. Like it did not disappoint. And I think even 
there's always that test of seeing something at Sundance and then coming back down to sea level and seeing if it still knocks you off your feet. And in the case of Farewell, it, it did even more so the second time around. Um, but it's it's Lulu Wong's second feature film. Um, it's based on her own experience, which she had previously told on an episode of This American Life about um, her grandmother, her nai getting diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and her family, which is apparently a tradition or like not that uncommon in Chinese culture, um, decided that rather than tell her about it, because I guess you don't have to tell patients about their diagnoses there. Um, they didn't, I mean, it was a real wedding. It was a, so staged isn't necessarily the right word, but they basically, you know, rushed this wedding, uh, between a cousin of hers and his fiance to, um, to take place in their hometown and the whole family descends. And it's sort of this family reunion that's also a secret goodbye to the grandmother who doesn't know that she might not have that much longer yet. Uh, no spoilers on that front. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and, and you were a fan of it as well. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I have to, well, you know, like I said, I saw it later with a more muted crowd and it hit me harder, but not actually instantly. And I think it was because I was kind of numb from just seeing movie after movie. <laughs> really? Is that what happens at a festival? <laughs> Sleep deprived. And um, and so I saw it. I was I appreciated it. I just I feel like I almost couldn't like tell it apart from everything else I'd been watching, but then it really sunk in. And I think I, I admired more and more that it did something that not very many movies are doing right now, I thought. And one of the things, and this is just a very um, literal thing, is I have a friend who works um, at a distribution company who was like, oh, can you believe it? It's like half the movie is in Mandarin. Like it, it is it even going to sell, you know? And that really struck me that they actually stuck with that. And um, and it's just something that I think movies that are kind of situated between countries or American movies that take place in a different country or culture, like don't do that often and should do. Um, and so I admired kind of the, you know, that uh, they stuck with the commitment um, of that. And also... I personally, I feel like I'm getting a little bit tired of immigrant and diaspora narratives that like have now a certain tropey narrative of, oh, I don't belong here or there. Who am I? Or, you know, those kinds of uh, this double life of being an Im immigrant American. And uh, this film does it very differently. I think it's it's very muted. And um, the fact that this explores that condition through grief, I thought was uh, a different angle and very moving and uh, that Aquafina's character comes to terms with sort of the loss of growing up, the, the losses that have um, been part of her growing up here through this loss that she has to contend with, you know, across an ocean. And, and when she goes it, I think she comes to terms with the fact that losing her grandmother would mean like losing this other place that I think she had been, she had kept alive through her grandmother. And she, you know, she is going to lose like perhaps the only kind of root she has there. And so I liked that it did that. Um, and I think it's very, very, it's very subtle. Uh, it's very understated, which is kind of, I think an overused word for that film at this point, but I did like how, um, 
yeah, how how nothing really happens. It just lets kind of these family dynamics play out and lets Aquafina's character just come to terms with various things slowly. And there's little moments that I thought were very specific and revealing. Like, I love that scene where, you know, she's sent to stay in a hotel or a motel and the concierge keeps asking her, like, which is better, China or America? China or America? And she's like, different, <laughs> different. different. And she just keeps repeating different. And I'm, you know, I, I feel like that's a question like I get asked a lot when I go back to India and like always trying to explain to people that, you know, different places and cultures are not comparable on some, you know, evaluative scale and things are just different. And um, so I liked those uh, little very knowing um, touches I think one thing you brought up is it being understated, which I think is I think is true. Certainly, it's a very funny movie, and it doesn't overplay that at all. But at the same time, I mean, there are many frequent laughs in this movie uh, that I think are really well uh, written and and just acted by everybody. Um, But I also think that what's impressive to me about this film, and this is something that I I spoke to a little bit, um, spoke to Lulu Wang a little bit about, was. that it has a real sense of style. And that I think a lot of, especially these sort of immigrant narratives, or even they don't even need to be immigrant narratives, but like when you think of like a Sundance kitchen sink type drama, it's sort of like very willfully trying to strip all aspect of like spy, like style or artifice away from the story. And there are multiple sequences in the film where it like kind of dips out of reality and you kind of have these dreamlike sequences where the whole family is walking through the city or, you know, it kind of has these little interludes of just kind of not necessarily what it actually looked like or what was happening when this happened to Lulu Wong, but how it felt, how it felt on an emotional level. And I think that's really impressive to see. That's something that I, I, pers- I personally feel very passionate about because I think that a lot of times, especially female writers and directors kind of get put into this box where like you can only do essentially like repertorial work as a writer or director like you cannot invent like people are less open to that of just like being like having a sense of aesthetic having a sense of style and emotion and interpretive emotion and that um is so it's so assured and so confident in the farewell and I was really really impressed with that stuff Mm, yeah yeah I mean my only real like complaint with it is my complaint with every movie that is a, like based on a true story, which is where then, you know, we inevitably see the footage of her actual Lulu Wong's actual grandma and like get, you know, the, this is what actually happened type thing at the end, which like you, she's created for me. I, I felt like she had created such a, like a work that was so able to stand on its own that then to be like, Oh, but here's, the actual woman who was at the center of the story. It's just like, I didn't need that. Like I could go look it up on Wikipedia later or something if I wanted to, but yeah. You wrote about that, right? I did. It's like my number one rant. (laughs) No, I really share that rant. I I can't stand it. It's just like, and this fiction, but forget about it. Everyone's okay and real. Yeah. And also it's like this, um, I, I also felt like that was unnecessary because it's this like feels like also this claim for legitimacy that that's also this like oh I'm a woman and I'm actually you know from I'm depicting my life and so it's extra special which you don't need for this film yeah Yeah. there's so much going on in it that it yeah it stands on its own yeah yeah it's I I don't know I I get the sense that never really will stop (laughs) it's just gonna keep happening and it happens in the most absurd situations too like I, I watched Tag 
on the plane mm-hmm. like last year and it's a thing. That's a bit, yeah, it's in tag. Yeah, it's I did that, a Is it the Jason Bateman movie? Yeah, that's the one yeah. where the, it's based on, it was some news story about this group of friends <laughs> that played tag over oh, the course God. of decades. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, and I, my my hot take in that piece was just that like, for indie movies and comedies and anything that's not like a Marvel sized movie that reality is the IP. So like you have to be, right. you have to be slavish to like the IP of reality, which is, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not as much fun. You can, that's not what I'm into film for, I guess. So, yeah. 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 And it's, it's also just a bit of a, it's just like a gimmick. It's one last thing. It's like, it's, there's an anxiety to it that the audience won't be comfortable sitting with the emotion they have that you have to have this like little, Oh, little cherry on top. It's like, Oh, okay. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's the farewell, a little bit of farewell to the farewell, which came out last week, right? It's coming out this week. Oh, this week. See, this is, this is the jet set life we lead. (laughs) We don't even know what time zone or what release date things are. I, I believe it's a limited, I think they're gonna platform it a little bit or are they putting it out immediately to a bunch of theaters? I don't, Oh, I don't know. They're not going to midsummer it. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you have do you have feelings about the midsummer release pattern? Oh well, I just feel like there have been a lot of. I don't think that midsummer. I wouldn't say that it was botched, but I think like something like late night or something was would be something I would consider botched or booksmart, where it's just like oh, right. you could have mm-hmm. you could have built that out, um, yeah. let the word of mouth spread a little bit. But I'm pretty sure they're not doing that with. They're not going to just immediately put it out to 4,000 theaters, I don't no, think. I, yeah. <laughs> I think, I, I mean, I'm. don't quote me on this, but I think I read that it, it's going to start out as limited. And yeah. that does seem, you know, what you would expect. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, another thing we were going to talk about that's maybe on the, like the opposite scale of like awareness as far as like, I don't know, independent films go would be uh, The Art of Self-Defense, um, which is... Not a film I've seen, so I might have to ask for testimony from someone else. Oh, oh. So I think Emily. Am I the only person here who's seen it? Just, you know, launch into your monologue. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, let me know if you have any questions. Right. Q&A afterwards. Um, well, it's, it's actually been a second since I saw uh, Art of Self-Defense. I'm actually going to see it again this Friday. They're doing a lot of little screenings. Again, this is one of those releases that it's sort of, that kind of scratched my head a little bit about it um, because I saw it at South by Southwest. Um, and it was uh, very well received, I thought, there. It was probably among my favorite things that I saw at, at South by this year. And it's just this really just pitch black comedy from Riley Stearns, whose last film was um, Faults. And I can't remember when that came out. Um, a few years ago. Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. I like Faults a lot. Yeah. Um, this is uh, the easiest way to describe art of self-defense is that it's a martial arts comedy about toxic masculinity. But that like very much conjures up kind of like some kind of Kenny Powers or like some <laughs> kind of Judd Apatow adjacent type thing. And this is just much, it's just bone dry. It's it, Jesse Eisenberg plays this, um, this guy who's sort of just like this total milk toast. We might call him a beta, uh, <laughs> who, um, who decides he's going to learn karate and go to the strip mall dojo and learn the ways of karate from his sensei played by Alessandro Nivola, I think his name is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the, the way that it's framed, the way it's written by Stearns is very much that he wants to become, he is scared of other men. This is in the trailer. Like he is, 
constantly being belittled by other men, made to feel small, like, and he wants to be able. He, oh yes, he gets beaten up. That that's what happened. That's the inciting event. Is he gets um, like mugged and beaten up coming home from work, uh, and so he decides he wants to go learn self defense, learn how to be a man, um, and it goes in such absurd and violent and like. I, it doesn't allow you to, it allows you to laugh at the absurdity of this like macho culture that he walks into. There's one woman at the dojo um, <laughs> played by, um, um, oh, she's got- In, Imogen Poots. Imogen Poots. Yeah. I was like, well, how could I forget that name? Imogen <laughs> Poots. Um, but, uh, and, and she, you know, she's just openly mocked by all the men there. They just like don't want her there. Um, and so it lets you kind of like, enjoy the absurdist comedy for a while, but it really does eventually kind of curdle into something that feels very adjacent to a horror film. Mm. Like the, 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 the dojo and its culture starts to feel like a prison for this character and like something he can't get out of, like, like a, a heist gone wrong or something like that. Mm. Um, I thought it was really, really funny and smart and just, I, I feel like, narratives about toxic masculinity are probably a dime a dozen these days or everybody wants to like say something about it but I feel like through this sort of slightly surreal world of the strip mall dojo that Riley Stearns has been able to like kind of really boil it down to its essence mm. and I really I was really impressed with it yeah yeah um I, I I'm probably you were you were you were you were avoiding or, or you know just naturally able to avoid comparing it to Fight Club which I keep reading about yeah which is interesting yeah. I only bring it up because it's like interesting thinking of this as toxic masculinity and Fight Club of course like creating a new model of masculinity for yeah. like, you know, Gen Xers or something. And also it's just being like 20 years to the dot, um, mm -hmm. you know, almost since then. Well, it's just been, you know, every stylistic thing that defines Fight Club is just completely absent or inverted mm -hmm. in this film. It's just the most unglamorous, just like, ugh, <laughs> feeling like uh -huh. you, none, none of these dudes are cool. Uh, it's scary, but not in a cool way, <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. um, which is, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting comparison for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I just know from, from the last movie, um, faults. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just, it was just this like drab menace to it, you know, like it was also mostly in a hotel room, wasn't it? Or I seen her a motel room or something. Yeah. A lot of it was, and yeah, not, not, not like something you would savor. It's really, I found it pretty good and horrific, but, but not something you could kind of like turn around into some ironic cult item. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting A Faithful Man. Actor-director Louis Garrel is caught between two strong French women, played by Leticia Casta and Lily Rose Depp in this romantic comedy set in Paris. An official selection of the 56th New York Film Festival, the film was co-written by the legendary Jean-Claude Carrier. A Faithful Man opens July 19th at the Quad Cinema and the French Institute Alliance Francais in New York before expanding to select cities. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comet, with features on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jim Jarmusch interviewed by Amy Taubin, and Maddie Diop's Atlantics by Dennis Lim. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism and subscribe today at filmcomment.com. So, uh, so that's that's art of, the art of self-defense. Um... What else? I guess we were going to talk about um, an Argentine movie as well um, that's coming out today, and that is Rojo um, by 
Benjamin Neistat. I might have to re-record that. Um, but he's a filmmaker I've sort of associated with more like more experimental features. Um, this one is a bit more uh, straightforward. Um, and it's another entry in just kind of reckoning with, you know, Argentine uh, life under the dictatorship. Um, and, you know, Pablo Larraín kind of made his bones making these just perverse like interpretations of refractions of, of that that experience. Um, this one's actually set at the time, which I guess would mean, again, I'm going to embarrass myself, but let's say late 70s, early 80s. It's set in 1975. 75. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's set in 1975 um, and it starts with a, uh, it's, it's basically centered on like a bourgeois like family of a lawyer who's like known in his town and um so and yeah and, and anyway so we follow that character and it's i don't know i liked it quite a bit i think devika you said it as well right yeah yeah i also liked it quite a bit what really struck me was um how this what you just mentioned this like creeping this ominousness that you know the world i liked what you said like it feels like the world's about to end it feels quite literally like that. Like um, the way it's shot, I think it could be, it could have turned into a science fiction film. Like it could have actually turned into some kind of alien invasion or doomsday science fiction film. And there's these tropes, there's this house that, and and the trope that I think science fiction and these kinds of actual political scenarios share very literally is disappearances. You know, like people who are, get disappeared by the government. And so... I, I just, you know, I was thinking about that and there is there's a house that people suddenly don't live in and the protagonist and his friend go through the house and, you know, it could be like, oh, they were just taken by aliens and, and you know, so they, they confront these kinds of artifacts. There's also a really beautiful scene of a, like an eclipse um, oh, right, at yeah. a beach and the whole, everything turns red for a little bit. Yeah. So I, I liked, I don't know if those perils were, you know, intentional, but I loved that it invoked that otherworldly sense of um, just portent, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, it also felt, I, I think it's really well acted. And so yeah. even yeah. though not a ton happens and sometimes I was like kind of unsure of where this is going or what it's trying to say, the characters feel like so automatically lived in. Like I almost feel like, I felt like it could have been an episode of a TV series that I was just watching. Like mm, they brought so much history. I thought like you could sense that the characters were bringing a lot of history um, to their performances. Um, and also because it cuts in this way between all of the characters almost equitably that makes it feel a bit like televisual. And there's also some elements of style, you know, these zoom ins um, that are a little bit like that. So yeah, I, I I think it's like very well performed and maybe a yeah a more slightly subtler and more straightforward invocation of that time than some of the other things we've seen. I think, uh, but stylistically, especially, I found it very interesting. Yeah, it they just they, it has a way of just kind of gently showing you how people end up doing shameful things, and then that becomes kind of what. It becomes the new reality. Yeah, it's like, oh, there's an abandoned house. Its neighbor is curious about the house. Maybe they want to acquire the house because there's no one there. And 
um, you know, that, that happens. And then there's also a sense of um, it creeping into like a kind of muscle memory in the film as well. Uh, and one way they do this is that the, the, the um, teenage children of, of the lawyer, or rather the daughter of the lawyer who's a teenager, is rehearsing this dance performance, um, which I guess I should probably recognize. I don't know what it, what it is. Um, and it involves like the, 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 like the snatching of a woman (laughs) by like two, I guess, suitors or something. Um, and just that sense, you know, like the echoes of like disappearance and, um, that's, you have that feeling and other, other little things that are, are happening like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, a cu- couple other just like things I liked, um, you know, America, the American cowboys yeah, that's right, show the American up cowboys. and um, they're on this like tour. And so um, there's a kind of this discussion about the current provincial government failing to honor them appropriately or man- invite them in. Um, and so there's an interesting scene there. And, um, and, you know, again, like politically kind of relevant and uh, also there's this detective who enters the film at a certain oh, right. point. Played by Alfredo Castro. Yes, who is a Pablo Larraín yeah. regular, sort of. And Hoberman would call him a Pablo Larraín axiom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and in the, in the movie, he's a also a t, he's a real detective, but he also is a TV detective. Like yeah. he has a TV show where he solves crimes. <laughs> and so I, you know, the way he enters the film, even I mean, it's it's a I thought that was like my favorite shot where there's this like shallow focus shot of the protagonist and then the detective enters from behind and it's yeah. really blurry and there's cigarette smoke in the air, you know? And so it, it I, I don't know, it had this sense of like pastiche or a little bit of camp almost to it um, while also being very sobering. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's like actually feel bad saying this, but it's kind of fun. Like, no, <laughs> Turns out dictatorship is fun. <laughs> That's not what I well, said. Just so no, I mean, huge personalities. That's, that's God. Um, no, yeah, I no, just it mean is, it's yeah. made in a, in like this interesting way and, and, and this kind of stylistic kind of a little bit of indulgence adds to the very bad things happening, <laughs> things I highly disapprove of. <laughs> okay. It's good. We're on the record here. Yeah. Don't call we it podcast. We do not like dictatorship. We do not like dictatorship. <laughs> Definitely. Um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's Rojo, a, a timely movie, I guess. Uh, but, you know, just even standing on its own two feet, good movie. Uh, we had a little, just a little plug for a film comment piece. We had an interview with Alfredo Castro where he says like a lot of interesting things about how he thinks about, um, the, you know, his, his process and also a bit just capturing the mood and, and, and recalling the mood of, of, of society as a dictatorship is taking hold, uh, or like a military junta or whatever you say it. Um, so that, I guess someone should post that <laughs> is this like, <laughs> you're taking notes. <laughs> I'm sure that's happening. Everything's running. The trains are running on time. Um, so yeah, that's Rojo. Uh, that's also playing at film at Lincoln center. Um, right, right here. Uh, and that leaves us with, I guess one last film we want to talk about, but I don't, I feel like Emily, I don't want to leave you having to <laughs> sit here, be, be silent. Um, what, what 
<laughs> Anything in streaming you've seen lately that, you, that you've no? Up I've with been or? I've been actually watching more TV stuff lately, which is not normal for me at all. <laughs> Usually, I don't know what's going on with television yeah. at all. But um, yeah, I've been a little bit out of the loop with with new releases other than those two. Yeah. Well, but let's yeah. bring that into the dialogue. I mean, what what's a, what's a show you've been watching a bit of? Um, oh, well, I did a, well, I, I was working on a story just okay. about, um, yeah. <laughs> if you can talk <laughs> just, about it, this comes out next Wednesday. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm doing a profile of Hugh Grant for, um, Vanity Fair. So I just wrapped that up and that's going to be out in August sometime, I believe. Okay. Uh, but, um, I mean, it's sort of halfway between a, a, a film and a show, a very mm -hmm. English scandal, which was out last year, got some Golden Globe nominations and now it's up for some Emmys. Um, and I, it's Stephen Frears directed it, got Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw on it. I highly recommend it. I had, it was one of these things that I had a vague awareness of and I'm not a prime subscriber so <laughs> for political reasons, but, uh, you know, I got a screener and I was, I was, uh, I was really, really glad to have watched it and had the opportunity to watch it. It was, um, it's it's quite good. It's about a very um, it's about a very English scandal, and it's very English. <laughs> what is the scandal? I'm pretty ignorant about this. this scandal. It's it's a, yeah. I mean, so it's it incredible. This, yeah, this this um this MP Jeremy Thorpe and I. The trial happens, I think, in 1979, but it's this you know situation that went over two decades where he he was a closeted gay guy and he okay. had had this affair, actually. It's funny because Hugh Grant plays him and Hugh Grant was in his 50s when he played this and Ben Wishaw's younger, but they were actually kind of closer in age in real life. So yeah. it's not as much of like a older man, younger man thing. But it's interesting. I didn't know that. That yeah. adds a yeah. very different dimension oh, to definitely. the TV show. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but so they had this affair and he was kind of, you know, um, Ben Wishaw's character, Norman Scott, was sort of a kept man for a while. And then they fell out, had a falling out, went their separate ways. And then... Uh, through a, some some very very small time uh, blackmail, like can you give me twenty pounds uh, type stuff, <laughs> like uh, and and uh, Jeremy Thorpe's own paranoia about people finding out about his sexuality and trying to preserve his political career, it just becomes this huge mess that involves a plot to have Norman Scott murdered and you know and he's trying to become prime minister yeah and... he's like up for yeah this um he was like the majority leader for or for a while for his party and then and and meanwhile he's plotting to have this guy murdered and like having multiple sham marriages to <laughs> cover up any suspicions I guess and it's uh very funny at points it is uh you know, just got a bustling cast of characters and these two great leads, but it's also, you know, quite sad and poignant by the end um, because kind of no matter how, all the dastardly and ill-advised things um, Jeremy Thorpe does, you still ultimately, I think largely due to Hugh Grant's performance, like you do feel for him by the end just because he is somebody who was never able to kind of live his life on his own terms and didn't let himself either because this is kind of right at the point where like homosexuality is become, becoming something that doesn't need to be, it's like, um, it takes place some, sometime during the story that um, the uh, anti-sodomy laws are repealed. And so it's no longer illegal. People are starting to live in public as gay, but he is still from this 
old world where they don't, um, that's just not something that you do. So there's, there is a really tragic element to it. And I think it's really well acted and well directed. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And, uh, that's Stephen Frears directing. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. And well, I guess we can have a very British segue. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, right into Ray and Liz, um, which is, I guess, uh, coming to film form. I think it actually, weirdly, I just remembered it premiered at the Locarno Film Festival. Um, that is right. At, uh, last, last August, uh, where we, we picked up an interview with uh, Ray Billingham, the, uh, the, the director. Richard. Richard Billingham. I think I made the same mistake when I wrote the deck for that last August. <laughs> His uh, dad's name is Ray. And I, yeah, it oh, was so confusing yeah, Ray, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Richard Billingham. Um, and, and Devika, you've, you've seen it and have thoughts. Yes. Uh, I saw it at AFI Fest. So it's been a while since I saw it. Um, so I don't remember all the nitty gritty details, but it's really lingered in my mind because, um, I was very moved and I, I loved that film. Uh, just background, you know, Richard Billingham's a pretty well-known British photographer, um, and, and, and a video artist, I believe. And in the nineties, I think he did that, a photo series based on his family that, uh, you know, became very famous uh, called Raise a Laugh. Uh, and it's like pictures of his dad, mostly. Um, he grew up, basically Richard Billingham grew up really poor in council housing in the UK, which is, I think, their equivalent of project housing, council flats. And um, he and his younger brother grew up with just two young parents who were neglectful, sort of, you know, suffering from in poverty and harsh. And so um, the film is divided into three chapters. And I think um, a lot of it is inspired by his pictures, not directly, but I think there might be some um, pictures that were, you know, you those compositions were like uh, replicated in the film. And the first chapter focuses on them living in this like tiny house. They have tenants, this uh, cramped little house and just like their exploits there. And the mother is uh, is kind of the star of that chapter. She is a very domineering and also cruel figure. And, and I think she's the most interesting character in the film. And then the second chapter, the, they're living elsewhere and it focuses on the director's little brother uh, and his exploits that end up, you know, getting them moved into foster homes. Um, and then the final chapter is sort of present day or more recent times, focuses on Ray, the, the father, Ray and Liz are his parents, by the way, I should mention. So Liz is his mother. And uh, his father, who just now lives in this like tiny one bedroom flat, uh, rarely leaves. He's an alcoholic. He just has someone come in, get him food and drinks. And he just stays in bed and, and looks out the window. So very bleak, as you can imagine. Um, but surprisingly, despite it being like sad, very hard to watch, there's in the first chapter, there's like, some elements of humor that the like cruel humor directed at, I think like a relative or a tenant who is this very goofy uh, man who seems kind of young for, or like uh, who has the demeanor of sort of a child. And he's like bullied by another tenant who's like this young punkish kid. And that that's not the, this, this, this son who's doing it, right? Isn't it a brother or something or no, I no, think the, the bully yeah. I think that he's like a tenant. Ten oh, yeah. Okay. I don't think he's the yeah. part of the family. Oh, okay. And there's like just there's stuff that I I, I was like cringing uh, or like flinching more. Not not exactly cringing. But it's really hard to watch. And, and it's it kind of goes there. 
But also it's it's a weirdly charming film and I think it does this thing that these kind of memoirish films rarely do, which is that much of it is from the point of view of children because it's, you know, his memories as a child, his and him and his brother. And it actually maintains that childlike perspective. It doesn't necessarily feel like an adult reflecting on his childhood experiences, but it maintains right. that child's point of view. And what happens is the adults are neither, they are kind of evil. Like, I wouldn't say like, oh, you know, they're cruel, but you sympathize with them. They do seem really cruelly neglectful. They seem like bad parents. And, uh, you know, and caricaturish, actually, like caricaturish, like villains. But at the same time, they don't seem like bad people. And I think that's kind of this dichotomy that children can sustain, but not adults. You know, for adults, it has to be like, well, they were bad, but they were redeemed by the... And, and it's kind of that sort of impossible thing that the film does very well mm -hmm. uh, and kind of feels in many instances like a Roald Dahl short story, you know, where, you know, if you're a child, <laughs> adults are the villains, but they're also your entire world. Uh, right. And you're, you hate your parents for the things they do, but you also don't know anything better than your parents. So I, I just, I loved that sort of child, childlike, charming, um, point of view that it had while still, you know, just being able to depict poverty uh, very un in an unvarnished way that really mm -hmm. hits you hard. And I mean, it kind of goes without saying it's a really gorgeous film. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's these fades that, you know, might seem kind of cheesy if, if I describe them, but just going from one composition, like a cityscape to another to depict the passage of time. Uh, but it's just so beautifully done. Um, I think since he's a photographer, just such a strong visual sense and um, just the sense of degradation. I think I've heard his pictures described as uh, having or like inventing squalid realism. They're like right. very colorful and almost too close for comfort, but also beautiful. And I think the film kind of has that as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Squalid is a funny word because it actually, you know, it sounds kind of revolting, but also kind of appealing. Yeah, it's like or <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Squalor. squalor is terrible. Squalor. I, I, but just squalor, there's almost, I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about squalor. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's no, the, the colors in that movie, I, it's, it's are, are pretty, pretty, um, remarkable, the palette. Um, and it just strikes me also that Rojo and, um, Ray and Liz, they, they're both part of, they both managed to escape the kind of subgenres of, uh, art house subgenres that they're kind of part of one being like the, you know, dictatorship kind of things are getting weird, it's, it's, you know, um, Latin American dictatorship, things are getting odd. Um, and then the other one being, you know, British miserabilism, um, like, me, you know, meantime, probably being like one, I don't know, close reference point for the, for that film that, and in some ways a number of sim similarities. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, well, I think that probably brings us to the end of our, uh, podcast. Uh, any final, final thoughts or movies you're looking forward to? Well, I'm just really impressed that none of us have seen yesterday. I mean, <laughs> you didn't have to out us as, as uh, successfully we take that out. <laughs> dodging another day. Just, just we we did. We were going to have um, we were going to have some thoughts about yesterday, and um, but we were yeah. <laughs> 
tomorrow. Next time yeah. we will talk about <laughs> tomorrow. 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 Um, but uh, yeah, let's we can finish up there. Um, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This and, is fun. And Devika, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.